Support comes from Clipper Vacations, offering getaways on the Clipper Fast Ferry to Victoria, B.C. Clipper Ferry and hotel packages from $250 per person. Enjoy historic charm, afternoon tea, and more. Terms and conditions apply. Details and booking at clippervacations.com. You're listening to Soundside. I'm Mike Davis, in for Libby Dankman. Across the country, museums are opening up their display cases and removing items important to indigenous cultures. It's in response to some new policies from the Biden administration. The new policies fall under the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, also known as NAGPRA. NAGPRA was established over 30 years ago and created a framework for museums and other institutions to return certain objects to tribes, like human remains and funerary objects. But critics say museums have taken way too long to return many of those items. Under new regulations that went into effect this month, institutions must prepare to repatriate all human remains and funerary artifacts within five years. With the clock ticking, institutions are going to have to act fast. But repatriation is not an easy process. I wanted to learn more about what these new NAGPRA rules mean for museums And I really wanted to know what it'll take to get these sacred items back into the care of indigenous communities. So I reached out to some experts. I called Justice McNeely, the repatriation coordinator and assistant registrar at the Burke Museum in Seattle, and Dr. Sarah Gonzalez, a curator of anthropology at the Burke and professor at the University of Washington. I also reached out to Zachary Small, a culture reporter at the New York Times who has been following all of this. I asked Zachary exactly how many remains are still waiting to be repatriated. That's a great question. And one that would probably surprise a lot of people is to learn that there are about 95,000 human remains left in museums around the country. That's a number when I explain this to people and try and give the sense of size. That's just a little less than the population of Albany, New York. Wow. Well, that that definitely surprised me. I didn't think 95,000 would be the number that came back. Justice, and then I'll go to Dr. Gonzalez after, but both of you, what was your reaction when you found out about these new regulations? My feelings are quite complex about this when we first learned about them because these regulations have been in the works for a couple of years. NAGPRA is long overdue for an update. There have been a lot of hardships over the past 30 years on both for the institutions and for the tribes who are trying to do this repatriation work. So there's some excitement. There's excitement for some changes that will hopefully honor tribal sovereignty. There's also some apprehension for how this will play out for tribes. And we want to make sure that we are prioritizing them and their healing through this process and hoping that we can use these new regulations as a tool to make that happen. Thank you. And Dr. Gonzalez, what was your reaction when you found out about the new regulations? I'm actually excited and hopeful that these new regulations will fulfill the intent and spirit of the law, which is related to the human rights and sovereignty of tribal nations to decide how their ancestors and their belongings are cared for now and into the future. So it's been a much needed change to bring how NAGPRA is done in practice into alignment with what Congress's intent was in 1990 when they passed this act. Justice, as a repatriation coordinator, 
What concerns have you heard tribal representatives raise about NAGPRA and the whole process, you know, before these new regulations? That's a great question. And the tribes have been working with NAGPRA, obviously, since it began. But there's always been a lot of hardships in terms of some of the workload involved. There's always been some concerns over the fact that it can be a very slow process. There's a very bureaucratic process to NAGPRA that when you're working with institutions can become very slow. And tribes and their knowledge was not always recognized as the primary source for being used to make cultural affiliations or being able to complete repatriation, which is something that is added to the new regulations now. But that has always been a major concern is that institutions have a power in this process to be able to make some determinations about cultural affiliation that don't always have to consider traditional knowledge as the the primary source of information. I know that the the updates to NAGPRA, they're new, but do you think that these updates will address the concerns that you just mentioned? I think it now codifies a process that institutions need to acknowledge. So being able to have the duty of care, which is why we're seeing some displays are now being covered up, but that is because it's due to informed consent that is now needed, required by law in order to display anything that is NACRA eligible. And again, those particular categories that you listed before. And so being able to address that and also the fact that, you know, we're seeing traditional knowledge coming to the forefront and our lines of evidence that are recognized under the federal register um, when we publish our notices for cultural affiliation. It's a, a major step in tribal sovereignty. Of course, there's there's going to be some some probably some challenges along the way to see how this actually prioritizes their sovereignty and if they feel like this is a healing process in the end. Thank you. And Zachary, I see you nodding. Do you want to you want to jump in here? And let me know what you're thinking. Yeah, it's going to be a really complicated process for both museums and tribes. The reality is when a lot of museums were doing that initial inventory that the law prescribed them in the 90s, the inventory was not done very well. It was very rushed. So in speaking to dozens of museums around the country, I'm hearing from NAGPRA coordinators who say, listen, I want to do this right. I, we don't want these bones here, but the reality is I open a box and it says it has the remains of one individual and I analyze the bones and it actually looks like 20 individuals. So there's also a greater question within museums of like, what do we actually have? How much time and money is it going to take to like properly research this? And then on the tribal side, there's the question of like, you don't want to be taking the remains of someone else's ancestors, right? You know, there's a whole sort of deadline that's coming. Five years feels like a long time. It won't be for this kind of research. And a lot of questions still on how this work is going to be done within sort of the financial limits of museums. You bring up a great question for me, Zachary, and I think this is for justice, but Dr. Gonzalez, feel free to jump in if necessary. You open a box and you have remains from 20 people, what happens next? Like what specifically happens next? So if this happened at the Burke Museum, for example, what are the steps behind getting these bones back to where they need to be? And how long does it take? It just sounds like a, not the easiest of processes. 
Well, that is a big question and one that we would really hope not have to you know, run into the situation at the Burke. But the, the process, obviously, with collections like ours being an archaeological repository for the state, we're sometimes dealing with collections that came to us like in the 60s or many years ago, and they are just now being looked at. And so there's a potential for something like this happening. And when it does, or when we feel like maybe we are dealing with an ancestor in our review, the, the first step is being able to bring what is a possible ancestor to a sacred space. So at the museum, we keep our ancestors in a, a secure area, and it's just a way to keep everybody together and away from main collections. When the ancestor is there, then we'll begin some looking into the provenience. So that means looking into the history of the collection and how it came to us. So have we repatriated from this collection before? Because that's pretty common. Is this something where we need to reunite them with other ancestors that have gone home already? And we're going to start notifying tribes and the Burke Museum is fortunate in that we've had so many relationships with local tribes over the years of doing this work that usually being able to reach out and get a response is something that we usually have a good ability to do. And through that process, then we were trying to make sure that we're doing our due diligence. If we have any hesitations about whether or not we are dealing with an ancestor, for example, they can take a certain um, skill in osteology or a physical anthropologist to make those determinations, and we're going to partner with people who have that type of knowledge to be able to respectfully make a determination on anything that we bring from the collection. And that information is then used for us to go through consultation NAGPRA outlines consultation as a necessary part of the process, and it is now defined under the new new regulations, which is kind of exciting for tribes. This is a, a way for us to connect over traditional knowledge and make sure that we are speaking to all the right um, communities involved. After that consultation process and through whatever kind of provenience uh, research or other research necessary, we can begin notice writing. And under NAGPRA, notices are published in the Federal Register, and this is something that is open to the public. Obviously, you can search any institution to see what kind of notices they've published. And when we publish to the Federal Register, at that point, we have determined a cultural affiliation, which through our consultation, hopefully a lot of conversations and conversations with other tribes who might be involved. Um, and sometimes tribes have to work together to make a determination of um, what will be most appropriate for the ancestor. We'll be able to add that information to the notice. And then we go through the long bureaucratic wait period of that being published, waiting for the claim period. And after that 30-day claim period is up on day 31, we could possibly repatriate. But sometimes that doesn't always happen. It depends on the tribe's time of when it is, you know, a culturally right time to do that and whether the, the right folks can be involved at the right time. Hope that answers the question. <laughs> no, no, it does. It does, Justice. And, and it again, it's bringing up another question because you touched on something that I wanted to ask Dr. Gonzalez, because critics have argued that the repatriation systems many institutions are using are rooted in Eurocentric ideas and don't place enough importance on indigenous oral history. These new guidelines as you mentioned, they're going to require museums and other organizations to defer to Native American traditional knowledge in the repatriation process. 
So, Dr. Gonzalez, my question is, do you think these new rules will actually change those systems? And can updated policy shift the power of repatriation back to indigenous communities as opposed to the typically Eurocentric institutions? I remain hopeful and optimistic that that will be the case. That's because under the law, there's several lines of evidence that tribes could pursue repatriation under, of which tribal oral histories and traditions were just one of the many lines of evidence. And historically, what we've seen is that institutions like museums, departments of anthropology, anatomy schools, you know, who collected human remains really spans the gamut. And you would be shocked in some cases to find where ancestors are literally squirreled away in closets at. Under those guidelines, one of the biggest sources of tension have always been tribes having to share their sacred and often confidential knowledge with a lot of outsiders to just be believed that one, an ancestor is theirs, or that two, a funeral belonging or object is actually a funerary object or a sacred object or an item of cultural patrimony. And you can imagine kind of the trauma that inflicts having to share knowledge that's not supposed to be shared with a much larger community at these successive stages. Museums have been out of compliance and have had to come up to the NAGPRA review committee, for example. You know, tribal members have had to go in and testify. And in some cases, those testimonies haven't been weighed in their favor. And the hope under these new regulations is that museums now have to listen to how tribes define what is sacred, what is a funerary belonging, what is an item of cultural patrimony, what is an ancestor of theirs. We're talking about updates to NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, with my guests, Dr. Sarah Gonzalez and Justice McNeely from the Burke Museum and Zachary Small from the New York Times. When we come back, we'll hear about the generational divide in the world of anthropology and archaeology and how that intersects with tribal sovereignty over culturally imported objects and human remains. You're listening to Soundside here on KUOW. You're listening to Soundside. I'm Mike Davis in for Libby Dankman. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Sarah Gonzalez and Justice McNeely from the Burke Museum and Zachary Small from the New York Times about updates to NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Museums across the country are updating or even closing their exhibits after the update. NAGPRA now requires institutions to return human remains and important objects like funerary artifacts within the next five years and consider traditional knowledge and oral histories from Native Americans in the repatriation process. The federal regulation is attempting to right historical wrongs perpetuated by museums, anthropology departments, and anatomy schools. Zachary Small of the New York Times says there's been some pushback to these new regulations. I will say there is a bit of a generational divide. I mean, this for many scholars, you know, the, these materials, the ancestors, artifacts, funerary objects, were how people made their academic careers, right? They wrote research on it, they published. That's really hard for academics to let go of, regardless of you know, the very serious human rights complications with how we see these objects and remains today. I think 
you know, on the whole, though, museums publicly, you know, they they want to be in step with the law, of course, and they want to be seen to communicate with these groups. No museum wants you to come into their exhibition hall and say, oh, like this history was made without the consent of the people it's about. You know, today, that just doesn't sound right to a lot of visitors. I go to a lot of museums, Zachary. I think that crosses my mind actually pretty often. I, I can't speak for everyone else, but that's hard for me to escape. Now, when we talk about NAGPRA, I think we, we talk a lot about the human remains because that's what jumps out. But it also requires museums to get consent from a tribe before they display some cultural items. How are museums responding to that requirement? So museums are responding in a couple of different ways. When these guidelines first sort of came out in a final form in late December, there was a little bit of debate of like, well, what does it mean to get informed consent? What does duty of care mean, right? These are written down rules. There's a whole bureaucratic process. And then there was a meeting in January after these things were finalized and it was clarified by the government that you really, like, we're serious, you need to get consent before this stuff is even displayed. So some museums have gone through and papered over their displays, like, with actual paper, just to shield the funerary objects from view. Others, like the American Museum of Natural History in New York, have outright said, you know what, the exhibition halls for the Eastern Woodlands and the Great Plains are really outdated by, like, 50 years. We wanted to change them anyways. And there's so much material in those exhibition halls that we have to just absolutely close them. And and this is like 10,000 square feet of space. This is like (laughs) for any other museum would be their entire museum. Zachary, what are the potential consequences for a museum or institution that doesn't follow the new regulations? You know, it's a good question. Within the guidelines, there are fines that museums could face, but of course, These are still new. We haven't really seen what that will look like. It seems from the people that I've talked to in the government that, you know, there's an understanding these things are new. There's going to be a lot of conversation and and helping people get into compliance. But certainly there's a, a financial penalty here that could happen. I have a question for you, Dr. Gonzalez. I want to talk about the other side of this. What impact do you think the new NAGPRA guidelines will have on museum visitors and how they observe and interact and engage with Native American and Native Hawaiian history moving forward as they're visiting these institutions? Well, often our visitors already bring up these issues, these complex ethical issues. I mean, this is a common question that visitors coming into the Burke have for us, and especially our visitor services team. They ask about repatriation. Oftentimes, justice at our open house events and behind the scenes night has a table and it's one of the most packed tables because people understand that this is a really critical issue and of central importance, especially here in the Pacific Northwest. I I think from the museum standpoint, our visitors certainly appreciate having transparency around these issues. As a faculty scholar and mentor who teaches Lots of students here on campus, along with colleagues in our heritage department, you know, our students are also raising these questions. And we are training the next generation of Indigenous anthropologists and archaeologists to ask 
what is our duty of care to indigenous communities, not just here in the US, but around the world? What is our duty of care to other communities whose heritage that we hold in our collections? So I think what we're gonna be seeing is a lot more productive thinking and responding to how we can do this work of taking care of other people's belongings better in ways that are ethically accountable and which ensure that the knowledge that's held in these belongings is used in the present and is put back into community. And I think that's one of the most inspiring things that we've seen at the Burke since you know, the work that has been done by now decades of my colleagues, or justice as my colleagues at the Burke Museum, is they've taken great care to think differently about how can we chart a future for our disciplines, for our field that is inclusive, that's responsive to indigenous and black critiques of the work of anthropologists and archeologists, and I personally, I think that future is a really bright place and it's just starting to be dreamt up by the next generation. Thank you. Thank you. And Zachary, I want to go to you. You're in New York. I was in New York last year and I got to tell you, I've seen a lot of artifacts that brought a lot of these questions to my mind. Like, how do you all have this? Who okayed this? Who said yes to you? So not to put this responsibility on you, but just to ask the question, do you think that these new guidelines are going to change the way that people like me coming to visit the museums are going to start to engage with these types of artifacts? I think they already are changing the way that visitors are engaging, not only what Dr. Gonzalez just mentioned, but, you know, I, I've been hearing it from museums since these changes have passed. And there have been other changes recently in policies around human remains, specifically at the American Museum of Natural History, but at the Smithsonian as well. And it's not, not everyone is so happy about these changes, to be honest. You know, there are people that come in that grew up going to these museums on school trips and seeing the Native American displays, the funerary objects and everything else. They wanna still see that. And so a lot of museum officials are now having to deal with angry visitors coming in being like, why, why is this huge portion of the museum closed? Like they feel like it's part of their history too. And that's going to be a really difficult conversation to have with the public for you know a lot of <laughs> really complex reasons. Justice, I've heard you speak today many times in many different ways about relationships, like relationships between museums and community and tribes and, and all of these different, you know, stakeholders that are involved. How can museums and other institutions go beyond NAGPRA to improve their relationship with indigenous communities on repatriation and representation in museums? Wow, that's a big question. Um, and I have many thoughts about this, but something to think about is when you're working in a museum, you're working inherently in this colonial institution that has a history of colonial harm. I think something that maybe is intimidating at first for building these relationships with tribes is just knowing that there is distrust and there could be some challenges with navigating that because you're bringing up a lot of, you know, self-work and feelings of you want to do the right thing. However, you know, there's, there's a vulnerability that comes with that. That can be difficult. But I would say something to go above and beyond is being able to think about accountability. Think about the accountability on behalf of yourself and your institution of possible harms that have been done. And be able to have some open communication about that and how you want to move forward 
going above and beyond in these relationships means showing up for the tribes. That means being there for the community when they need you, whether that is for repatriation or for collaborations of different kinds or for community events where you know, you have this relationship and it means a lot to come and, and show that, that you care and having those genuine relationships. It's complex and being a part of an institution is always going to, you know, and being associated that way is always going to make some of those relationships a little bit difficult at first, but it takes time. The Burke has taken time and we are continuing with new relationships as well. And it's, it's a process, but it's one that can be started and one that only gets stronger. Stronger. Thank you. And I'll give Dr. Gonzalez the final thoughts here because you are an educator and you are working with the students who are going to go into roles like what Justice is doing, students that are going to go and do this work in museums. What are the conversations that you're having with the students and what do you think the future is going to look like, especially in the aspect of just respecting culture in these institutions? Well, I'll give an example here. When I first told my parents that I wanted to become an archaeologist, uh, this happened over the dinner table, my mom started crying. She was like, but you're so smart, you could be a real doctor. And one meal, many years later, when I was in graduate school at UC Berkeley, we had a meal with tribal elders from the Kashaya Band of Pomo Indians and California State Park members at Matini, Fort Ross, kind of in the heart of Kashaya's homeland. And that summer, my mom was serving as our camp cook for all of our students and all of our guests and tribal members. And she turned to me and she said, you know, archaeology isn't what I thought. This is really important work that you're doing, and it's really transformative. And to me, that's really a lesson for everybody who has participated in NAGPRA or in consultations with tribal nations or just in collaborative research with community. They mark it as something that's incredibly transformative. changes their ideas about the history of our field, about the trajectory that we need to chart going forward, and deeply informs people's ongoing commitments to doing this kind of work and understanding the importance of this work for the people who made the belongings that we work with on a daily basis as archaeologists and anthropologists. And I would say just learning from the students that I've had the privilege of teaching through the field schools that I've run with Kashaya And now with the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde, like I said before, I see a really hopeful future that more people that understand the importance of this work are being created. And the students that come through those training programs like Field Methods in Indigenous Archaeology, they're bringing forward into the future the lessons that they've learned from Grand Ronde and other tribal communities that they work with to understand what tribal sovereignty means, how it impacts the work that we do, and just the critical importance of doing the work of repatriation. That was my conversation with Justice McNeely and Dr. Sarah Gonzalez of the Burke Museum, as well as Zachary Small, a culture reporter for The New York Times. I'm Mike Davis. Thanks for listening to Soundside. This show is only possible because listeners support us. If you're able to give right now, please check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. 
Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.